0: In our quest for wholeness, there's a delicate dance between the narratives that shape us and the ones we survive. Though we don't often think about it, our past shapes our perspectives, values, beliefs, and aspirations, subtly guiding us towards paths that align with our lived realities. Reflecting on our journey often reveals the hidden threads connecting personal experiences to our calling of service and unveiling a profound and often unrecognized influence on our personal and professional choices. Sometimes it's the values instilled by loved ones at a young age, or the challenges we've overcome that subconsciously steer us towards serving others. Or perhaps it's the empathy born from personal struggles or witnessing the impact of support on our own lives that moves us to want to help others the way that someone once helped us. There are many things that shape the lens through which we experience the world, ignite our desire to serve others, and instill the persistence we need to keep coming back to do this work day after day. These shaping stories are at the heart of what my guest Shauna Horman and I explore today on this episode of Service Without Sacrifice. We talk about part one of my book, Tell Me My Story, Challenging the Narrative of Service Before Self, which is all about the beliefs and experiences that shape who we are and how we show up in the world. Shana brings a wealth of experience and wisdom garnered from over 25 years as an organizational consultant and professor. She's been a mentor to me as I've navigated the world of occupational trauma and her expertise in organizational trauma, resilience, and the dynamics of leading through adversity really made this such a rich conversation. So to provide some context for our conversation, I'd like to share the opening section of part one of the book, which talks about our shaping stories and how they influence our thoughts, actions, and choices. Shaping. The stories that shape us originate outside of ourselves and result in the fears, expectations, hopes, desires, and assumptions that create the lens through which we experience the world and our place in it. This lens influences the stories we create to explain what's happening around us. Often starting in childhood, these shaping stories take root through the values and beliefs passed down from our parents or other caregivers about things like money, work ethic, safety and stability, duty, preserving family reputation, gender roles, culture norms, and the importance of caring for others before ourselves. We're also shaped by the implicit and explicit messages we receive from friends, teachers, neighbors, and religious leaders, as well as in the books we read and the shows we watch. It's often through these encounters and messages that highlight our differences that we experience moments of othering, subtle acts of exclusion, and confusion about who we are or need to be in order to fit in and belong. There are other times when our shaping stories are informed by circumstances and events we're not fully aware of or learn about later, like the trauma experienced by previous generations before we were born. Even without our awareness, these experiences burrow into our minds and bodies, the way the sadness and struggles of the people around us makes us feel isolated and alone, and the way our values have a dark undersides of shame that creep up when we're not performing to family, cultural, or societal standards influencing our thoughts, actions, and beliefs from one moment to the next. The shaping stories in part one reflect the complexities of a few pivotal moments that became the catalyst for the conditioned reactions that influenced the choices I'd make, both personally and professionally, for decades to come. Shauna and I are both on a mission of healing individuals and the traumatized systems within which they serve. Over the course of our conversation, we consider the concept of brave spaces, the sacred grounds where vulnerability is embraced and courage thrives. And we delve into the intricacies of generational trauma and the often unspoken impact it has on individuals and by extension, their workplaces. We also explore the nuances of addressing individual trauma within the workplace, uncover the threads that bind us, the stories that isolate us, and the potential for healing through connection. Thank you for joining us as we embark on this journey through the complexities of persistence, trauma, and the profound connections that define our pursuit of service in a world striving for wholeness. I'm Dimple Dabalia, and this is part one of a story about service without sacrifice. Shauna, thank you so much for being here today. I am really, really excited to have this conversation with you. Today, we are talking about part one of my book, Tell Me My Story, Challenging the Narrative of Service Before Self. And as you know, this part of the book focuses on the concept of shaping and specifically what I call our shaping stories. The shaping stories that I kind of talk about in the book, I kind of think about them as the kind of experiences that we have in our lives that are sometimes outside of our own control. And they really start to create the lens through which we experience the world, we experience ourselves. And they become kind of the basis for our own fears and expectations and hopes and desires and assumptions. And then really that just shapes how we show up in our work, in our relationships, in everything that we're doing. In part one of the book, I shared a lot of what I think are some of the pivotal shaping stories in my life. And then how those imprinted on my mind and body And really shaping the person I'd become and influencing how I showed up, not just in my relationships, but in my work and like the choices I made in terms of the career that I pursued. So, a lot of the kind of overarching themes in this part of the book included things like generational trauma, othering and exclusion, what I call the split identity that's very common, especially for like immigrant children, things like that, violence and mental health related challenges, lack of stability. And then also at the heart of this idea of what it means to be of service and kind of how those narratives were shaped for me. So thank you so much for being here. And I'm curious, what came up for you as you went through part one of the book?
1: Thank you very much for allowing me to be here. So many things came up for me. And I have to say that one of the overall themes that kept coming back to me again and again was the theme of persistence. Mm. Yes. And I was stunned so many times in those stories about the juxtaposition of life and death, Mm -hmm. that people chose life to the best of their ability And that life was not a given. And that persistence of your uncle, for example, absolutely persisting to get to a place of safety and wholeness, even leaving so much of his heart behind. And that then echoed with the story with your mom and dad. Of your mom absolutely wanting to get to a place again of safety and wholeness. And again, having to leave part of her heart behind. In the first story with your mother, when she leaves your younger sister, I just felt that tearing, that sort of ripping apart. And My experience of years of working with domestic violence survivors and thrivers is that they often have to leave many times. Each time a decision gets made that goes a little deeper and a little deeper, and there are lessons learned about how to achieve safety. But it's like, that's almost technical, right? How to achieve (laughs) safety. Yeah. Whereas what's real is, how do I protect my children, myself, be safe, and leave a part of my heart behind? Yeah. So that came up for me again and again. What resonates for you when I say that? First of all, thank you for that insight. I hadn't really
0: thought about it in that way. But when you think about Shaping, because shaping and surviving are so closely intertwined, right? Part two of the book is about surviving. And that's basically our survival reactions to the stories, like these shaping stories. What was the term you used about safety? Like you're
1: saying it's the technical term. Safety is the technical part about the planning and what you're doing. yeah. But the heart, being safe, persisting and coming into wholeness. Yeah. Well,
0: so that's the interesting thing about kind of shaping for me is that I think at the end of the day, as human beings, we're craving this feeling of wholeness. You know, that's a lot of what I talk about later in the book is that we are whole human beings and trying to compartmentalize ourselves is not a very realistic way of being. And it's what we're asked to do every day in our workplaces, in other parts of our lives. And so in this quest to be whole while also kind of hiding that wholeness, it really impacts how we show up. This idea of how can I be safe and what does it take for me to be safe? What do I need to give up in order to do that? And it's a hard question. To your point about how oftentimes people will go through these patterns over and over or these like they'll go through these stories over and over until they're able to make a different choice. I'm curious, with even the term persistence, how do you think that shows up through these events that shape
1: us? Where do you think the persistence comes from? If I could back up just a minute, and then I'll address that question. Please. yeah. So it occurred to me that while your mother and your uncle could not always find safe spaces, they kept looking for brave spaces, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And that family was so much a part of that, that that was who they looked to. Then when I think, where does persistence come from? I think about what shapes us right at the beginning, which is family. Yeah, And that the heartbreak of seeing your father descend into mental illness and the heartbreak of his being physically violent, that wasn't your experience right at the beginning. Right. I'm grateful that you got to have safe and brave spaces right at the beginning. Yeah. You got to then see how people responded to that, responded to the changes, Mm -hmm. and that your mother was so cognizant of needing to provide care and I say that to you because again as somebody who comes out of the DV field sometimes people lose their sense of perception they lose their sense of how dangerous things are and right from the beginning of the book where you talk about your dream it's really clear that At least all the way through to your subconscious was this awareness of how dangerous the world could be and what did you need to do to be able to persist through to wholeness, which of course the first part isn't about, but it is about persisting through whatever life puts in front of us. That's a really
0: interesting way to think about it. I hadn't thought about it in that way of persisting through, but that's really what it is when we think about this whole story healing cycle is it's going from that place of shaping, to surviving, to finally having the awareness to notice what's happening. so the seeing and then making the new choices to shift and then being able to finally share our stories. There is a strong current of persistence that runs through that to get us through. That whole place. And it's fascinating to me that we move through this for years, for decades of our lives without even realizing that that's exactly what's happening and how hard we are on ourselves without realizing that we are persisting through all of these really challenging moments and experiences to get us to that point of wholeness. And not just of wholeness, because again, we are whole to begin with but being able to feel and acknowledge that we are whole and what that means in our day-to-day lives.
1: I love that. It's like we don't usually do a pause, any kind of a sacred pause and say, wow, I came through that. Or wow, I got up today. And you can do a retrospective and think about how far you've come and We're not always acknowledging each little win. Mm -hmm. I mean, how amazing, even just the win of your uncle, getting back on that bus and walking by all of those people. I mean, think of the courage that took. Yeah. And the courage of your mother, not once, but more than once, of saying, we have to do something different. We have to get out of here. Yeah. You know, it's not that he's a malevolent man. He is a sick man and we cannot be here. Yeah. To your
0: point about the brave space also. So I talk about this later on in the book because I agree, like, I think it's so important to make that distinction between brave space and safe space. And we've all heard it from the poem. I think it was Mickey Scott Bay Jones, but her poem was actually based on a poem by somebody else. And the name is escaping me but I'll make sure to include the correct links in the show notes. But it's this idea for people who don't know that not everybody has the privilege of safe space. And so Brave Space is really this acknowledgement of our humanity. And it's this acknowledgement that we are going to show up. We're going to make mistakes. We are going to make the wrong choices. But at the end of the day, we are doing our best to create this space and safe space kind of implies that this is a place where you can say whatever you want do whatever you want and it's okay but it doesn't acknowledge that sometimes when we say what we want and do what we want it's hurtful to other people and so it's with that understanding that I'm probably gonna hurt you in some way and that's not my intention um and vice versa right and so um, so that's what we mean when we're talking about brave space but Um, but yeah, like I, I really, I think that that's such an important piece of this, that when we're in, you know, like we think about shaping stories starting in our childhood and as children, we're so dependent on the people around us. So our families are usually the first people that we encounter and that shapes a lot of how we view what's safe in the world and what's not right. I just had a chance to spend time with some extended family this past week. And it's been interesting, right? To hear a lot of perspectives that I don't necessarily agree with. And had I heard some of those when I was growing up, my view about life would have been a lot different, or people in this world might have been a lot different. But my parents had very different views. And so that's what kind of shaped my initial views. I'm actually reading. What My Bones Know by Stephanie Fu. I don't know if you've read it. It's really stunningly beautiful and it's all about complex PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And her complex PTSD came out of abuse that she suffered from her parents when she was a really young child. As I was reading it, I just kept thinking, shaping story, shaping story, shaping story, because It was like there were so many things that her parents were saying to her or doing to her that were creating those lenses through which she would ultimately view herself that were leading her towards thoughts of death by suicide, things like that. Mm -hmm. Part of this is looking at kind of things that were happening that we can look back now and see. But the other part of this that I think is interesting is looking back at the things we don't see like the generational trauma piece, I think is really interesting. And there's so much more happening with that now in terms of like epigenetics and, and things like that. Right. But I'm curious, based on your background, both personally and professionally, and the role that ancestors and generations play in our life and work, what are your thoughts on that around this idea of shaping and how that impacts us?
1: I so appreciate That I've had elders in my life who have really stressed to me that when I hear stories, whether it's from the residential schools that Native people were forced into or the kind of starvation and poverty on reservations, I'm so grateful that the elders who tell me stories also say to me, we are still here. I mean, I'm back to persistence. I'm back to the comment that we're the wildest dream of our ancestors and that our ancestors survived however they had to and that we who were seven generations out were already in them. I love that in the bones, in the bone marrow, in the womb. I think about the power of stories, and that we tell each other to inspire one another. For example, I love that you included the story (laughs) where people are putting down newspaper and you're sitting on the ground and it's like a picnic. And you're getting to eat your own foods and you're with people who share some of your experiences and spiritual belief, and food choice. And I think about that when I'm at powwow or I'm in ceremony or the canoe journey in the Pacific Northwest, just how amazing it is to see the power and the stories that we're sharing now with the younger people. And I think about them reading your book and getting to understand that bad things happen, really bad things happen to really good people. And we continue. I don't think we have paid enough attention to generational trauma, to historical trauma. We don't want to do that. We want to pretend that those things didn't happen or that they were in the past and they don't matter. Mm-hmm. As though going back to our grandparents, or even going back one generation, as though that doesn't impact us. Of course it does. Yeah. When I first read your book, sometimes I would find myself gasping. Like, oh, the power of this story and how hard it is. And then I would say, oh, what a blessing this is. It's out there. And other people can have courage and feel brave enough to say it's out there and look what we have come through and what have we learned that lets us go on, that we want to share the generations down from us. What do I want my granddaughter to know about what has been survived by the people in the family I keep coming back to that image of sitting on the floor and having food and your dad in a good space, Mm -hmm. being able to hold that memory. I mean, one of the things you could have done is you could have never presented him in a good space. That's true. And that's not what you did. Yeah. You presented the strength and you presented his descent. And I love that. That, again, is presenting that persistence and the modeling. We don't know what life's going to send us, but we do know that life is there and how can we meet it? How can we meet it? And you've met it with your book as one place. Thank you.
0: Actually, as you're talking, one thing that's coming up for me is You have a book as well. You co-authored Organizational Trauma and Healing with Pat Vivian. And for me, the two of you have definitely been mentors, especially in this organizational trauma world. I feel like there's still a lot of pushback. Like This is one of the reasons why I think that this book is needed right now. And I think that holistic human-centered duty of care is needed is because this exactly what we're talking about. There's generations of things, historical things that have happened. That have impacted each of us. And we carry that within us and we bring it into the workplace every day. And yet, the bulk of the organizations that we see out there and that we support through our work often don't want to recognize those things. I've been saying this lately a lot, which is that being human is messy and serving humans is messier. <laughs> And so there's this feeling I think oftentimes within organizations that we don't want to deal with the messiness of being human like we mm-hmm. want you to come in do your work and then go home and whatever like we don't care what you do at home. I'm curious like as you work with organizations how does this element of our shaping stories show up in the work and then how do we get organizations to kind of think about and acknowledge that These stories are a part of what make us who we are, and probably that have led many of us into these, into particular nonprofits or government work or whatever, is a lot of our shaping stories have led us there. So what are some things that come up for you in terms of the organizational trauma and healing that tie back to shaping stories, generational trauma, all the different forms of trauma that shape us, and then how they impact the
1: organization? One of the things I love about the beginning of your book, the idea of shaping stories, is that I have frequently been in organizations where I've asked people, what drew you here? Mm -hmm. What drew you to this work? What drew you to this organization? And had them tell me they'd never been asked that question. And I think it's really an important question that we know about each other it's part of our connection to each other, is our stories. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) I have to go back to, organizational trauma is often not recognized, it's often not named. You mentioned complex PTSD, often not recognized, not named. For us all to take a breath and pause and be able to say, what is going on here? And you can think about it at levels, individual, interpersonal, group, organizational, larger, or you can think about it in rings with PTSD in the center and then people who hear those stories, secondary trauma or vicarious trauma and, and org trauma and community and historical. Because what happens is we keep treating one another almost like we're mannequins, mm. almost like there's nothing there except what I can see with my eyes in a really cursory glance. Mm-hmm. And there's so much there. We're not brave. We're afraid. So rather than asking you, what brought you here or what's your story? Who are your people? We say, what project are you working on? What kind of deadline do you have? What's your next assignment? It's that kind of thing. And that doesn't actually connect us. And trauma disconnects us. Trauma fractures us. Trauma isolates us. So the more we can do to connect with one another, we heal. And we know that. We heal in relationship. And going back to your mom, I think it's profound that what she recognized was that she was not able to do the healing for your father. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And that would be something that just given socialization would be laid on her. Well, why can't you make him better? Or why don't you love him more? Mm -hmm. And she could recognize that that was not going to happen. That what was happening there was not in her control. How Sad and painful that had to be. And that what was in her control was to take care of you and your sister.
0: Yeah, it's a really good point. And this idea of connection, we talk about this a lot that as human beings, we're hardwired for connection and belonging. And this idea of a lot of our judgment or our perceived judgment is internal, like it comes from the stories we tell ourselves. And we end up creating the Walls between ourselves and our colleagues or others, especially because with trauma, to your point, the reason it's isolating is because there's so much shame associated with it, right? And that's why we talk about naming things and talking about things because the more that we can name them and speak them, they start to lose their power and the associated shame. But when I talk to leaders in a lot of organizations, a lot of times the pushback is we come to work to work and we don't have time, like this is not therapy, this is not the place to like share your whole life story and I wouldn't want my colleagues to know blah, blah, blah. And that's one of the things that I've really been thinking about is why this is important enough. What I try to think about is number one, it shouldn't be therapy because workplaces are not set up to be therapy zones or whatever. And most workplaces We're not talking about therapy, but we're talking about, to your point, how do we share stories to be able to foster that sense of connection and trust that we need to create that psychological safety, to create those brave spaces where people can show up and actually fosters innovation, which fosters all the things that we want to see in a workplace. And what I think a lot of leaders and organizations don't realize is that when we just ask people to push through and ignore again the messy human side of things we're cutting off entire channels that could potentially lead to greater creativity or of ways of making the work better because people are now contending with how do i hide my story how do i hide myself how do i do all this which to me kind of takes away from the brain power and other energy that could be used For other things. So this is the piece I think that's hard in the work that we do is helping people understand why it's important to talk about, again, not like your worst trauma, but why it's important to reflect on the things that have shaped our perspectives in the workplace. Because I've said this before, too, that people talk about, oh, the systems are broken, the systems are broken, but our systems are not broken. They are doing exactly what they were designed to do. And so when you think about how my shaping story has influenced me and my perspectives, and now I'm on this team that's creating a system for this organization, of course it's going to be influenced by that. This is why like, we need to pause and create opportunities to have those conversations and understand why is it That our system operates this way and excludes this group of people or makes them feel less than or doesn't value health and well-being or whatever it is. And especially in these organizations where it's a protection-based mission, whether it's humans, animals, whatever. Why isn't that getting extended, that sense of protection being extended to the workforce?
1: What your comments remind me of is how much fear There is in systems that if we talk about things, maybe we'll bring them into being or we will exaggerate them or exacerbate them. And I think that when people are really anxious and they talk about anything, I mean, they don't even have to be talking about trauma if they're just really anxious they will add anxiety to whatever system they're in. Mm -hmm. And so there isn't always the realization, again, that you could take a step back and take a breath and really use your good thinking to look at what is next. I remember being at a tribal college when we lost one of our team members. Sudden death. It was so difficult. Mm. And we came together a couple of times just to tell stories about her, what we remembered. And it was painful. It was difficult. Yeah. And the folks there, the staff at the college decided that a way to remember her and to heal was to set up a table in her honor. I was kind of back out of the way and had a picture of her and had sacred cedar and sacred sage and I had some of her favorite food. And it was so lovely that they were attuned to ritual and they were attuned to action. Mm-hmm. It's not just about talking about these things. It's about... We're constantly moving through. We are doing the work. We don't want to talk about that. We don't want to talk about that. We don't want to talk about that. We're only going to talk about work, especially in organizations that are so strongly mission driven. The work is hard. And if we don't talk about what brings us there and what the impact of the work is on us, we make the work harder. Yes. Yes. That's the thing. We could be making this actually more humane. And instead, we make it harder on each other. Yeah. And
0: to build on that, when we choose not to acknowledge the challenges in the work or the impact that it has on staff, that those now become new shaping stories. Right. So the cycle just like continues to build on itself. So for example, in my previous workplace, we had an entire division that was just shut down literally overnight, really, really high up in the organization. They made these decisions with zero transparency Mm. and then showed up, had a call with this entire group and basically said, hey, we're shutting this down. We had a lot of people overseas, things like that. And It was like, yeah, we're shutting everything down. You'll be back in this much time. It was so harmful the way that it was done. And it left everybody kind of reeling and in shock. But that was bad enough. There was no discussion of it. There was no discussion of, hey, this happened. We know it's bad. How can we support you? What are you feeling? What's going on? And I remember my little team of people, like we tried to do some stuff. And it was just really challenging because people were so hurt and upset. And we've seen this a number of times through the pandemic. There was a CEO who laid off, I don't remember how many, like thousands of people on a Zoom call and things like that. It leaves people just feeling like, what just happened? But then it imprints, like it imprints on their minds, it imprints on their bodies, because now when their mind is like going that way, There's all the stress hormones and everything going through the body. So now it's going to cause like physical issues as well. When it comes time to like either find a different job or whatever it is, this story has now shaped the perspective of this person to where they're going to make choices based on that. And I understand we have to make choices based on the information that we have. The problem is that we don't have to make choices based on bad information, which is what often happens in a lot of these places. I really think that understanding how these different experiences impact us, again, it has to start with the individual. I have to understand how things impact me, how different types of conversations impact me, how different experiences impact me, how they've impacted me in the past, because that's going to inform how they will likely impact me in the future until I can like make new choices. To your point about asking the question, what brought you here is so important because I think having an understanding of what has shaped us, what has guided us to get to this point will help to determine how we kind of move forward through things. And going back to persistence, what is our persistence? To what extent are we going to be persistent in continuing to move through to get
1: there. All comes full circle. It does come full circle. And the other word that comes to me is appreciation. Say more. What do you appreciate about being here now? There were stories and there was a drive that brought you to writing the book. And you have even new appreciations now simply by having conversations about it. Well, the same thing I think is true for people at work. All right, you came here because of this. I'd love to know if that value is still in play. And what do you appreciate now about being here? Because again, especially if we're working with trauma, we can start to sink. Yeah. And it's appreciation and connection that keeps us from sinking. It's a great point.
0: Oh my gosh, so much to think about. So much to think about. Anything else related to kind of, the org trauma piece for you. I love your point
1: about new shaping stories, that shaping stories are not just the original story or the first narration, that as we continue, we're continuing to shape. So we can become more awake to that, more aware of What am I shaping right now? How am I acting right now? And even more, how are we acting right now? What's our collective understanding of our story right now? Yeah. And I think the more that we can
0: find that collective understanding, the easier it becomes to move through the challenging times. That's what we talk about with psychological safety, is that we don't want to be reactive. We want to be proactive. We take the time to have those conversations and to build trust on our teams and build that sense of psychological safety where people feel like I can be myself here. I can speak up. I can do all the things I need to do. I'm not going to be punished for it. And we build up to that so that when pandemic shows up or when we have some other big kind of collective trauma that hits us, we are already a strong enough unit to kind of weather that. And it's not that we're now having to scramble and try to figure out how to muddle our way through. And I feel like that's a lot of what ends up happening is a lot of reaction mode, reaction mode, reaction mode. And inevitably, reaction mode is fight or flight mode. And that unless there's some major thing happening in the moment, that's not going to serve us in terms of making good decisions.
1: And imagine if, rather than thinking in terms of individual trauma we always thought in terms of collective trauma yeah we always thought in terms of whatever's happening to you it's happening to us you're part of us how can we be present do you want us simply to witness do you want us to suggest resources how different that would be again, because it would break the isolation and people would stop thinking of, I have to manage this myself. Yeah. Because managing ourselves,
0: that's where I found myself in that hotel room in Zambia was like trying to manage it
1: myself.
0: right? Again, that's where the shame lives and the isolation and all the other stuff. Oh my gosh. I feel like I could talk to you about this forever, but As we kind of start to close out, I want to ask one last question, which is in the container of this brave space that we've created together, what does that concept of service without self-sacrifice look like for you? Or what does that mean for
1: you? So first of all, I'm very grateful for the language. Service without self-sacrifice. I'm grateful for the language. And I have to say, there's this little part of me that's like, oh, I can't believe it. I just can't believe it. If I'm going to be in service, then there's just going to be some part of me that I'm sacrificing. And so to actually step into a space and say, what would that be? Really and truly, how would that be? Because I'll tell you, Dimple, I had a dream. I was working at a shelter that did both sexual assault and domestic violence work. And I felt so in the work and so overwhelmed and consumed by it, that in my dream, I couldn't ever leave. So I took my head off and left it on my desk and I took my body home to rest. Oh my gosh. That was my dream. Okay. So when I think about it now and the arc that I've traveled for myself in my work, I think how amazing it is to honor joy how amazing it is to honor beauty and to honor the sacred and that those are all such a part of me and that being true to me, but just being me means that I have that going on. And then I can bring truly myself to whatever my work is and not Bring this exhausted person who her head is separate from her body to actually stay whole, to stay whole and to value myself because that also values the work and the people that I'm with. Otherwise, you know what? I am so overwhelmed and I'm leaking that all over them. Yeah. So, how important that is. And again, Thank you for the language. Love it. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I am so
0: grateful to you. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. And just for the extraordinary work that you have done and continue to do in the world. I am so grateful to learn from people like you who have kind of been clearing the path. And then also just to be able to witness and support it. So thank you for that. So for anyone listening, please definitely check out Shauna and Pat's book, Organizational Trauma and Healing. I think especially for organizations in these kind of helping professions, it's a fantastic book. Definitely something everyone should be reading just to understand what it means for an organization to be traumatized. And we'll definitely put a link in the show notes as to where you can buy it and how you can connect with Shauna as well. For everyone who is listening, Please remember that at the heart of the word humanitarian is human, and we can choose to serve others without sacrificing our own health, well-being, and humanity in the process. Until next time, be well, and thank you so much for your service. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Service Without Sacrifice. If we want to put the human back into humanitarian work, we have to get this message in front of as many people as possible. And this, my friends, depends a lot on word of mouth. So if you enjoy these conversations and find them to be valuable, please like, subscribe, and review Service Without Sacrifice on your favorite podcasting platform. And share it with others who might benefit. And producing this show is a labor of love. Your support will help me to continue creating new content and sharing stories of hope, healing, and human-centered leadership for years to come. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber over on Substack where I'm working to build a community with my newsletter and content hub, Dear Humanitarian. You can find out more about my writing, the book, our online story healing community called The Hummingbird Circle, as well as how to work with me over at rootsintheclouds.com. And I'd like to take a moment here to acknowledge how grateful I am to live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Doge and Piscataway tribes. And I'd also like to take a moment to thank the team over at One Stone Creative for editing and producing this series. And finally, I'd like to thank you so much for your support. And most of all, thank you for your service.